So we're in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, and where we left off is that Paul the Apostle was concluding his second missionary journey. If we can put that map up, if we have it, Shane, we've got the second missionary journey coming to a close, and uh, all of these different areas that you see, these different provinces of Rome, and the, the red line there is just following from Antioch over there in Syria to the right, up through Galatia, past through Asia, into Macedonia, and then back around all the way back to Antioch. And so we're actually completing that journey. It was a several-year journey. And in the first missionary journey, you know, he planted all those churches in Galatia, and he was revisiting those and then planting new churches. And so now he's coming to a close, and that's kind of where we're at in chapter 18. And when, he le- when, he's, when he's finishing up, if you remember, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him in Corinth, and Paul was a tent maker. Uh, Aquila was a tent maker. They were living in the same home. You know, you remember all of that. And so he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he returns to Antioch. And he really doesn't make much of a stop in Ephesus. It was really fast, if you remember that. He, so we know about the Ephesian church in the New Testament, but this is not really when the Ephesian church was planted, so to speak. That's on his third missionary journey. But on this one, he makes a quick stop there. He preaches a little bit. People are interested. They ask him to stay, and he says, no, I can't stay, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind there. And of course, they had Paul's DNA. You know, they had his, his revelation. They've been living with him for years. So they had a lot of understanding. Well, you're going to find out, we're going to see that on his third missionary journey, when he comes back to Ephesus, there was a lot of work that Priscilla and Aquila had already been doing there. But before we get there tonight, we're going to spend some time looking at the life of a man named Apollos. And some of you are familiar with him. He's, he's sort of a background character in the New Testament, but, but also kind of prom- more prominent than some of the other names that get mentioned along with Paul. So verse 24, we get a little bit of information about Apollos. So verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's not where we live, that's Alexandria, Egypt, okay? Big difference. So a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Now remember when it says that he was competent in the scriptures, it would be referring to the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament at this point. So he was a Jew and he was very eloquent, meaning that he, he spoke very well. His, his speech was powerful. He, com- he was a great communicator and he was competent in the scriptures. He was competent in the Old Testament, in his understanding of the Old Testament. So let's kind of dive into this and find out a little bit about this man named Apollos. First of all, says he was a native of Alexandria. So again, when the scripture tells us this, it's telling us this for a reason. It's telling us this because there's information that Luke expects us to draw from that statement. And it would have meant a lot more to his hearers then than it does to us because they would have known Alexander. It would be, it would be almost like somebody saying today, well, this guy was from New York. Well, if they say that, you're going to automatically draw conclusions about what he was a native of New York. He was born in the Bronx. Okay, well, that's going to tell you a little bit. Or if somebody says he was born in New Orleans. You know, that you're going to go, oh, okay, I already, that already gives me a lot of information about him because I know where he's from and I know what the culture of that place was like. Well, we may not feel that way about Alexandria, but that's how their readers would have known about Alexandria because Alexandria uh, was the capital of Egypt and it was founded by Alexander the Great 300 years before Christ. So, been around for a while. And it was the biggest city in the world for a while until Rome became the biggest city in the world. And that made Alexandria the second biggest city in the world at that time. So, very large city. And when you think of the capital of Egypt, you might think, okay, well, there's a lot of Egyptians there, right? Just, but actually, no. It had a very large Greek population. 
And Alexandria was home to the world's largest Jewish community. So with, Alex- with Alexander the Great founding the city, obviously there was a massive amount of, of uh, Greek influence. So when you think of Alexandria, don't think of an Egyptian city with like, you know, pyramids and stuff like that. It, it wasn't that as much as it was just like, almost like Corinth or any of these other kind of Greek type cities in a lot of ways, except it was much larger and uh, much more populous. So there was a very large Greek population there. The official language of Alexandria was Greek. And at this time of the world, actually, the, uh, really the official language of the world was almost Greek at this time. So Alexandria was home to the world's largest Jewish community. And it was from that Jewish community that the very first translation of the Bible was ever written, meaning the the Bible was written in Hebrew, and then the very first time it was ever translated into another language, it was translated into Greek. So, and that translation was called the Septuagint. Some of you may have heard that that word before, but the Septuagint, when you if you ever hear that word, it's referring to the very first Greek translation. Of the Bible. So you just, you think about that forever. You know, the Bible was written in Hebrew. And so the only way you could read it was if you knew Hebrew. And at this time in the world, that, that, was, be, that was becoming less and less people, even Jewish people, because uh, a lot of these Jews from Alexandria and places like that, they were born in a very Greek city that spoke Greek. They never learned Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew. The only words that they knew were Greek. The New Testament itself was written in Greek. You know, and actually every, uh, almost every direct citation in the New Testament where one of the New Testament writers uh, quotes or cites an Old Testament reference, they, they quote it or cite it from the Septuagint, which from the Greek. Even like Paul who knew Hebrew, he doesn't really quote, quote the Hebrew Bible he quotes from the Septuagint, which is this translation. This, th- so this translation, this Septuagint, was first developed at Alexandria. And it would have been about 300 years or so before Apollos. Not, not quite 300 years, but in the 250 to 300 years before, this, the Septuagint was first created right there in Alexandria, Egypt. And this is where Apollos was from. So just telling you a little bit about the Septuagint, because for one, I think it's good information, but it'll also give us information about Apollos too. Uh, You have to remember that, again, the Hebrew language was becoming more and more obsolete by this point. So if you think about the Word of God needing to be spread to all of mankind, and only a few hundred years later, the gospel was going to open up to the Gentiles... It, only, it seems like to me that this was kind of like a divine setup that if you just look at the course of things and you go, okay, the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek and then a couple hundred years later, Peter gets this great revelation that now the gospel is open to all the world, not just Jews. Well, conveniently, we already have a Bible in a translation that they can speak and understand. So I think God was behind that one. He was kind of working that one behind the scenes. But this, this translation became incredibly important. And actually, many modern Bible translations that are translated into English, when they, when they go to translate it, they have a few options. They can translate it from what's called the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew. They can translate it from the, the Vulgate, which is Latin, which was a later Latin translation. Or they can translate it from this, the Septuagint which is Greek. And most, many modern Bible translations are translated straight from the, the Septuagint. So it was very, very uh, influential, and even today, very, very influential. The word Septuagint means 70, because it was, what, they, what they did was they brought 70 uh, Jewish Hebrew scholars together to make this translation. And the first five books were done quickly, probably within just a year or two, And then over the next several decades, the whole Old Testament was translated into Greek. Again, the reason why this was so important is because very few people spoke Hebrew. Even many Jews that would have considered themselves followers of God didn't speak Hebrew at this point. So it became very, very 
influential and very, very important. And so you can see that this, this Jewish community that I was telling you about, it was home, to, Alexandria was home to the world's largest Jewish community. Well, that, it was that Jewish community that ended up producing the Septuagint. And then this is the Jewish community that Apollos was born into, of course, a couple hundred years later. And Alexandria had changed and all that, but it was still the second largest city in the world. So this is where Apollos was instructed. He, was, he, he came out of this heritage. And again, there was lots of scholarly work there, lots of, uh, of scholars and intellectual you know, people there that, 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 that heritage and that culture had stayed there for so long. And then you kind of see, I guess, you know, those subtleties in Apollo's uh, life and in his story when the New Testament talks about him. You know, for, I mean, we see it in the very first verse. A Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria. Again, he's telling you that for a reason. When he, when he says he's a native of Alexandria, they're going to go, oh, oh, he's from Alexandria. Okay, that, that makes sense. He came to Ephesus. It says he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So those two words, eloquent, competent, tells you there that he was an educated man, he spoke well, and he had great understanding of the scriptures. Verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. So this first phrase, I'd love to know the answer to this question. And I did all the research I could possibly find and couldn't find anything definitive. But I wanted to know, it says he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. I wanted to know so badly who instructed Apollos, but there's just nothing out there. I couldn't, I couldn't find it. Maybe I'll keep looking, but I, if I do find it, I'll come back and tell you. But I, it, there's no definitive answer to that. It do, doesn't say who instructed him. But I guess the only clue that we have is the knowledge that he had and the knowledge that he was missing. Because it does tell us the knowledge that he had, which was the baptism of John. But then we find out later what he had to be more instructed in. So whoever it was that instructed him was very familiar. It was someone that had been influenced by the baptism of John and had made their way back to uh, Alexandria. And there's lots of information about how that probably happened. That probably happened back in the very beginning of Acts when you remember the, the believers were all dispersed because of the persecution and they were spreading the gospel everywhere they went. It's likely that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ first came to Alexandria from that persecution. When, that, when they spread out from there, that was likely one of the ways that the, the gospel first came to Alexandria. So, however, it came to Apollos. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. It says he was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, what does it mean that he knew only the baptism of John? Well, we actually ended up talking quite a lot about this when we talked about baptism a few Sundays ago. But knowing only the baptism of John actually meant a few things. For one thing, it would, you know, when, when, when you hear John preaching, John mostly preached repentance, right? repentance, prepare ye the way of the Lord, you know, you know, rend your hearts and, you know, repent and come to the Lord. And even his baptism was limited, right? Because his, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't the same way that we're baptized now. It has a more robust meaning. It still means the things that it meant for John, but more. So, and even John said, you know, John said this, said this, he said, I baptize with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So one thing would mean that he only knew of the baptism of John could mean, well, he only, he only knew about water baptism and, and that type of thing. And he hadn't been yet made aware of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the very next chapter, chapter 19, Paul actually deals with a very similar situation. He comes up upon a group of people and he says... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we didn't even know there was a such thing as the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, then what into what were you baptized? He said, the baptism of John. 
So that's the first thing, is that this is indicating to us that while he was very accurate in what he was teaching, while he had a great understanding of the Old Testament, while he knew who Jesus was and that Jesus was the Messiah and all of that, he probably had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit the same way we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 next week, that after the, pour, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that some still were receiving the Holy Spirit at later times um, because they just hadn't even had a chance for anybody to tell them about the Holy Spirit and about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that seems to be the category that Apollos falls into, for one thing, when it says the baptism of John. But here's the other thing. Here was the, here was the main message of, of John. First of all, repent. That was number one. Repent, repent, repent. That was John's message. Number two, he was proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, which is slightly different than being the Son of God, but he was also declaring that Jesus was the Son of God. Those are two separate things. And he was proclaiming that Jesus was here to take away the sins of the world. You remember one of the times that John passed Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why am I explaining this? Because... There's, there's kind of a, it's an interesting study to find out exactly how much John knew about Jesus, okay? We know John had a revelation about Jesus, but he didn't have the revelation that Paul the Apostle had. Paul the Apostle, when he writes the New Testament, he, he has the greatest revelation of what the life of Jesus meant. How, what's one way we know that John did not have the full revelation about who Jesus was, at least not like Paul? Well, if you remember, several years after John's ministry had ended and Jesus had taken over and was traveling all over Judea, uh, John sent one of his disciples to Jesus and he said, go and ask Jesus, is he the, the one that we've been waiting for or should we look for another? Why, why was John having that moment of confusion? Well, John was having that moment of confusion because of what his perception was about who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to look like. And when Jesus' ministry started taking the turn that it did, John's going, hold on a minute. Did I? You know, he's having a serious question here. And you can imagine this is kind of a crisis moment for John where he's in prison. He's actually not very far away from his death. He's baptized all these people. He's raised up disciples, pointing everybody to Jesus. And his whole ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the Messiah. When he, when he saw Jesus... And he baptized me. He said, I'm not even worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. When he does baptize Jesus, the heavens open up. God speaks. The Holy Spirit comes down. Like John has seen all of this with all of his eyes. But yet still, a few years into Jesus' ministry, he, he's sending a disciple to ask, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we were looking for? Or should we look for another? And Jesus' response was basically about offense. Basically, you know, talk to, told him to talk to John about not being offended. So we know that John's revelation and understanding of Jesus was not complete. That's my point. It was not complete. Therefore, his disciples' understanding of who Jesus was was not complete. And that's where Apollos falls into. They had a great foundation. They had a great understanding. But they did not have the revelation that Paul had. I say it like this. When you read the Gospels, you get sort of the, you know, you get, you get like an x-ray of, uh, of, of what, who Jesus is, what the cross is. You know, you get a, 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 a sort of a, it's, it's beyond just a surface level understanding, right? It's not like a, a doctor bringing in a patient and just looking at them from the outside. You get a, a, a sur more than a surface level understanding like an x-ray. But then when you read when you read the New Testament, you read the epistles, it's like an MRI. Like it goes in deep and you get this more robust revelation. And it's not that the revelation we have in the Gospels is incorrect. Of course not. It's, it's perfectly correct. It's just not the, full, it's not the full piece. What the Gospels do is they explain physically what was happening. It's, the Gospels explain very physically and historically what happened, right? Jesus was a man. This is what he looked like. These are the cities he went to. These are the people he prayed for. These were the disciples he had. 
this was his trial, this where he was crucified, this is where he was buried, the tomb. See, it's all very physical. You get a very physical picture of, and a very historical picture of what happened. But when you get to the epistles, it's almost not physical at all. There's very little talk about any of that. And all the talk is about what was happening in the heavenlies, what was happening behind the scenes, what was happening in the spiritual realm. So Paul's going to talk a lot about redemption. He's going to talk a lot about adoption as sons. He's going to talk about your inheritance. He's going to talk about all of these things that you know, becoming a new creation in Christ. He's going to talk about principalities and, and powers being destroyed and authority and rulers. And he's going to talk about everything that happened behind the scenes. So only when you read the rest of the New Testament do you find out what was really happening on the cross. You know, a lot of believers' uh, mentality is only from a gospel standpoint. And it's not because they don't have the New Testament. It's just maybe it's only that they've ever been taught or that they only have ever thought about. You know, for example, and if this is you, I don't have a problem with, you know, this is between you and God. But I don't have any uh, pictures in my house, for example, of Jesus on the cross. You know, I know this is a big thing to a lot of people. They, they even have like statues and stuff and plaques and, uh, you know, on the wall of like Jesus on the cross. And he's very, y'all ever seen those? Or kind of, if you're a kid, it probably scared you, you know, when you saw it, like Jesus all sunken in, looked like he hadn't eaten a meal in 40 days. You know, his ribs are sunken in, he's bleeding, he's half this way, he's on the cross, you know. Um, to me, okay, that'd be like if you lost a loved one, and the last picture that you have of them was up here in the casket. You, you come up here and you take a picture of them where they don't look just right, you know, the, the mortician, bless their heart, did the best they could, but it don't look quite like them, and you take the picture, and that's what you have on your wall. That'd be a little strange, wouldn't it? No, we have pictures of... When they're happy and joyful and, you know, at family events and vacations and things like that. Because that's who they were. Well, our Savior's not on the cross. I mean, I don't, I don't have a picture of Jesus on the cross because he's not on the cross. And thank God for the cross. Thank, of course, thank God for all of that. But, and that's not how Paul looked at it. When Paul thinks of the cross, when he thinks of Jesus, he's not even really thinking that much about the physical act. He's thinking about the price that was paid in the spiritual world and in the spiritual realm way more than the physical act that was accomplished on the cross. But some people's mentality of it is just that physical thing. And even when they are thankful to God, they're thankful for his physical suffering. Look, praise God for his physical suffering. I, I wouldn't want to go through it. I didn't want to get beat and crucified and, and all of that. I don't, I don't want to go through it. And so, but when I'm thankful to God, if I'm only thankful for that physical side, I'm kind of lacking, actually, some understanding of, of really all that God has done through, for me through the cross. So, it's not just that his side was ripped open and his back was beat and the nails were put through his hand, you know, that's, that is a horrible thing to go through and I'm so grateful and thankful that he did that for me. But, you know, he could have done that for us. And paid the price for our sin through that. But us still remain slaves and servants. It doesn't automatically mean that because our sins were forgiven that we were going to be elevated to the status of sons. It doesn't even mean that we were going to receive heaven for all of eternity. Like he could have put us in some neutral place that wasn't hell. But he brought us in. And not only that, the Bible teaches that he made us a co-heir with Christ. Think about that. The inheritance that Jesus is going to receive, the, the, the inheritance that Jesus has received, the Bible says that God gave it to him because of what he did on this earth. In other words, he earned the name that is above every name. The Bible teaches that. Well, we didn't earn it. God, Jesus was given that inheritance, but then the Bible says that he made you a co-heir to that inheritance that Jesus paid the price for. See, all that... No one would know that through watching the physical death on the cross. No, you, can't, you couldn't have been Mary, you know, or John on the front row watching Jesus crucified. You couldn't have been there knowing that at that time he was, he was purchasing sonship, that he was purchasing our eternal inheritance. You couldn't see that physically on the cross. Well, see, that's what John understood. It was only after Paul 
And by the way, Paul tells us that he received this revelation not from man. He received it directly from Jesus. I always love thinking about this because <laughs> uh, Paul was a... Paul was a... Don't, don't misunderstand when I say this. But Paul was a self-appointed apostle. In other words, the apostles did not appoint him <laughs> apostle. He appointed himself Apostle, why? Because of the experience he had with Jesus. See, no one could be an apostle. You remember when Judas, you remember when Judas betrayed Jesus and he ended up dying, and then so they had to replace the twelfth man, right? The twelfth man. They only had eleven, and so now they needed the twelfth man to come in as an apostle. And they and they said, it must be one that has been with us from the beginning. Why? Because it had to be someone that witnessed everything in the three years. If, if you came in halfway through or you're just now becoming a believer after the events, you don't qualify. Okay? You're not, you're not eligible for this uh, honor. It had to be someone that had seen everything and was there from the beginning. They had spent the three years with Jesus. They, they had watched and seen the whole thing and could give accurate witness and testimony. So in the book of Acts, when they choose a 12th man, it has to be somebody like that. And that's who the apostles were. The apostles were literally the 12 that had walked with Jesus for three years and seen everything. Well, here comes Paul. He says, I'm an apostle. <laughs> he says, I'm an apostle. And what I learned, I did not learn... It could almost sound at least a little bit offensive when you read the way that he explains it. But he, when he's explaining to his, to his hearers, he says, I didn't receive the revelation I got from Peter. I didn't receive it from any of the apostles. No one taught me what I'm telling you. I received it directly from the Lord Jesus. So we know the encounter that he had on the road to Damascus. But even beyond that, there were visions there, there, were, there were encounters with, with heavenly beings that he had where the, this revelation was imparted to him directly. And because of that, he qualified as an apostle. And he didn't have a problem saying, I am an apostle. I am one who has seen Jesus and gives testimony and witness to the risen Son of God. Now, why am I saying all that? Because you need to know the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. This is what's being explained here when it says that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. He did not have the full picture. He had the picture from the Gospels, okay, but he didn't have the picture from the epistles, if that makes sense. So he knew Jesus was the Messiah, knew Jesus was the Son of God, knew Jesus took away the sins of the world. Now, verse 26. It says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue... But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, remember Priscilla and Aquila have spent years with Paul and literally lived with Paul at this point. Priscilla and Aquila were with Paul when he was writing the epistles. I mean, the time that they were together, we know for sure the time they were together that he wrote at least 1 Thessalonians. This was when they were back in, in Corinth. So we know for sure that when he was with Priscilla and Aquila, he at least wrote 1 Thessalonians and possibly other letters so they, they were having these conversations with him. They, Paul, you know how Paul was. He was explaining all of this to them. He, every ounce of Paul was being poured into Priscilla and Aquila. So they had the, the, uh, at least a lot of the revelation that Paul had. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what he had was good, but he needed something else added, added to it. You know, I can say that I think that we have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today. Good people, love God, love the Word, but could still have some things added to their understanding about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about, you know, the way, the move of the Holy Spirit and things like that. That some of you may have even came out of denomination. I mean, I know I hear this a lot from people that come to our church. They say, well, man, I've, I've been in church my whole life, but I never knew some of these things that we're talking about or that, you know, were been, had been explained. And that's kind of where Apollos was at. What he had was good, but he needed, he was missing a lot too, and he needed some things added to it. And we can all find ourselves in that place, right? There, there's always more to learn, always more to know. And thank God for people that can come alongside you and say, hey, it's really good 
what you have, but let me add this to it. Sometimes that happens just through a process of staying faithful, being in church for year after year. You know, you don't get it all in year one. You don't get it all in year, in year five. Some things you can't get um, until you're just older, you know, and I'm not, and I know some of you looking at me and go, older, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. I turned 40 this year, so I said older. I didn't say old, all right, but I'm, but there's just some things that, for example, you just about can't even understand until you become a parent, right? Think of, think about children. You know, when you, before you have kids, you think you know so much about raising kids. You think, you know, when you think, when I have kids, my kid ain't doing that. My kid is not acting that way. I'll beat them. I ain't acting that way. I'll jerk the slack out of them. Heck no, that ain't happening. Uh, and you just think you know it all. And some of us even had the audacity to tell other people that actually were parents our opinion about what they should be doing. And then when you had kids yourself, you just thought, man, I wished I had shut up and not said anything. I didn't know anything because having kids just gives you a whole different perspective. And, and you, there's really no other way to get that perspective except through actually having that experience. Well, some of our uh, things that we need to understand through the Lord are the, are the same way. You know, um, I know when I was in college, I was probably very, I would say, rigid and maybe intolerant towards Christians at large. Meaning, if you weren't following God like me, okay, if you didn't have the same commitment and hardcore habits and disciplines that I had, I don't even know if you're saved. You know, I just, that was my, but as I became a pastor, I began to understand, no, way before I became pastor of this church, I'm talking in the ministry, a long time ago, but begin to understand that, you know, actually God's love and his mercy is very, very wide, very, very, very wide. And it's, it's, you know, so my heart began to expand and in love and, and mercy towards people to close, more closely match God's heart. So it was some of those experiences that created that. But one of those things that can do that in us, not just experiences, is it's people. Sometimes you can get hooked up with a person that's very influential in your life to helping you grow in the ministry. Probably every one of us in here maybe can, can think about someone like that, that at some point played a very instrumental role in your life and in your Christian development, maturity, and growth. And so praise God for Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what's interesting about this relationship is you know, and, and this is always the interesting part about things like this, you know that Apollos was, we'll say, ignorant of everything that he didn't know. But Priscilla and Aquila were very aware of everything that he didn't know. And this is always an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Where you're trying to tell somebody something, he's like, look, let me, let me help you with this. And they just can't see what they don't know. They can't understand what they, they don't know. But the person who's trying to explain it can see it. And you know if they'll just listen and if they'll just humble themselves, they'll see it and they'll understand it. But in the moment, they're struggling. Because if you're Apollos in this moment, Man, you're preaching boldly, and probably you've been patted on the back a lot. You've had a lot of people pat you on the back and say, man, that was a good sermon. Brother, that was awesome. I mean, he's going places. He's in the synagogue. The Bible says he's preaching boldly, eloquently, right? He's well-trained. He's, he's got a good word, and people are listening to him. They're inviting him back, you know, and they're, they're coming back to hear him speak, and he's traveling around doing this. But then you have this couple that... They're not quite like everybody else. They don't come up and just pat him on the back and say, dude, you are amazing. They come up and they say, man, that was good, but we need to talk a little bit. And that can be hard. So this tells us actually a lot about Apollos because he actually received what they had to say. And I'm going to say from being uh, in ministry, it can go either way. Like sometimes as a, as a pastor and and you guys are all going to relate to this. I mean, because if you're a parent, you're going to relate to it. Sometimes you'll see something in somebody's life, and you're like, they're, they're lacking this. They need this. They need to have a, we need to have a conversation about this. But it's, it can be a coin flip of whether they're going to hear it or receive it or not. 
you know, you know, sometimes people are open, they got that humility in them, and they don't have that high view of themselves, and they can't wait. They're like, man, why did it take you so long? I, I've been wanting somebody to tell me this, and I, I've been wanting to know and grow and learn, and anytime you see anything, please tell me. I've had that response, and I've had other responses, too. <laughs> and what happens, though, is, and this is why uh, the Bible speaks so uh, aggressively towards pride, what happens is, is when you walk in pride, what you do is you, you actually shut off avenues of growth and change in your life. And so this person tries to come and you put that wall up and you shut them off. And then this person, maybe later, they try to see something. They try to make a point to you and you shut them off. And before you know it, you've got a whole wall built all the way around you that no one in your life can say anything to you. Even people that should have a voice in your life. Because I understand not everybody should have a voice. But there are some people that should have a voice in your life to say certain things that maybe you can't see. And before long, though, if you're not careful, you've built walls all the way around you where no one can say anything to you. And it doesn't matter how good they say it, how kind they say it, how eloquent they say it. You're just, you've got those walls up and you don't want to hear anything. That's why the Bible says that pride comes before fall. And I like to think of it this way. Yeah, it comes when that wall is complete. Because as long as there's still an open door, you know, then you can still be reached. But once you've completed that wall around you, and now nobody can have a voice in your life, pride comes before a fall. And that, that destruction will happen. Let me just say this. Sometimes when you're in the middle of something, you can't see what others on the outside are seeing. And you need wisdom and you need people that can speak into your life to help you. Had, had Apollos shut out Priscilla and Aquila because he couldn't see what they were saying, we'd have never read about Apollos again through the rest of the New Testament. Matter of fact, we wouldn't even be reading this. He wouldn't even be in here. His ministry would have been cut short because he needed what they had. He just didn't know it at the time. But thank God he had enough humility to recognize, even though I'm not quite sure what you're talking about, I know you've been with this guy, Paul, that I've been hearing about, and I'm going to be open to hear what you have to say. So they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. What does more accurately mean? Well, it means they, ex they expanded him beyond the baptism of John, just, just the understanding of the baptism of John. Basically, they put Pauline revelation in him. Everything that Paul explains in the New Testament they begin to expound into Apollos. So can you imagine once Apollos got that little bit, that little bit of uh, the ingredient, you know, that nugget that he was missing. He was already so powerful. You can imagine how he became after that. Uh, and actually, we're going to read about it just shortly. So he got a deeper revelation of the death, burial, and resurrection. This was Paul's kind of sweet spot, was understanding the meaning of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they explained that to him. He would have learned, uh, presumably, that the Gentiles were now included in the gospel. Because this was still new. That the, that the, the gospel wasn't just for Jews. Because Apollos himself was a Jew. So part of the Pauline revelation was, hey, Gentiles are included. You don't have to preach just in the synagogue. You don't just have to preach to Jews. This is for everybody now. Uh, he would have learned that the law, following the law, was, was finished. That there was no... Uh, reason to continue following the Old Testament commands for our righteousness in Christ. And he would have learned that the way to God, and this is one of the biggest, Paul, biggest Pauline revelations, that the way to God was by faith through grace. And he wouldn't have had that complete understanding at this point. Um, it would have still been through the... And, not, and repentance, of course, is part of coming to faith. But that repentance that John talked about and the following of the law would have still been a big part of his understanding. But he would have learned that the way to salvation is by faith through grace. That's one of the biggest revelations of the New Testament that you don't necessarily get immediately in the Gospels. You get it later through Paul's revelation. Verse 27. So they explained to him the way of God more accurately and when he wished to cross to Achaia, and that, that's Corinth, okay? Let's, let's look at the map real quick. If you notice over there all the way to the left, you have Macedonia, 
in the orange, and right below it, that green section, you have Achaia. And in Achaia, you have Corinth, you have Athens, you have Chinchuria, and that's where he's headed. He's actually headed. It gives you the province, but actually he was headed to the city of Corinth, and we're going to find that out later. So when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him there. That's the disciples in Corinth. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Why was he able to greatly help them? Well, partly because of what he received from Priscilla and Aquila. He took what they'd given him and he gave it to them. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So praise God for Apollos. He had a lot of uh, powerful work there. I want to show you a few other places in scripture that he's mentioned. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.1. Let's go there. Paul uh, is talking about Apollos' influence in the church in Corinth. Now remember, when he was going back to Achaia, he was going back to Corinth. So 1 Corinthians is written later, obviously after Apollos has already gone back to Corinth. And so now Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he mentions Apollos. And this is the situation that's going on. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. Now, no doubt, (laughs) okay, so what was going on here, and you'll see this from the rest of the scriptures that we're going to read, what was going on there was that there were some in the church was that like, man, I like that Apollos guy. Now, remember, Paul was the one who planted the church. So, and there's things in Scripture that indicate out of Paul's own mouth that he really was not an eloquent speaker. He, he even says many, many, uh, several times, uh, he says, when I was with you, my speech was not eloquent. It, it was not with words of wisdom, but it was in the power of God. And then another time he addresses this where he says, oh, some of you are saying that, oh, he's very powerful and weighty in his letters, but then in person, he's almost kind of weak and feeble. So Paul It's presumed that Paul was not really the greatest public speaker, but that he was very powerful in his writings. And so here, in what's going on in Corinthians, is you got a group of people that are going, well, you know, Paul's okay, but I really like Apollos. He's just so good, and when he preaches, you know, give me that little tingle up the spine, and I, I like that. You know, and so then others were saying, no, man, Paul, Paul's the man. Paul's the one who founded the church, and he's got all this revelation. Apollos wouldn't be anything without Paul. and So you've got these kind of factions in the church. No doubt when Apollos got to Corinth, just like everywhere else that he went, they noticed how powerful his speaking gift was. He was a powerful communicator. He was pouring out revelation. And so now Paul's explaining. He's like, look, I know y'all think Apollos is the greatest thing since sliced bread, But let me just explain something to you. Okay, when I was with you, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. Okay, when I was there, y'all were just coming into the gospel. Y'all didn't know anything. So I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So I fed you with milk. I didn't give you solid food. I fed you what you needed at that time. I fed you with milk, not solid food. And probably what he's thinking is, I got solid food. You just weren't ready for it. I had to give you what you could handle. Because I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And I love this. And even now you are not ready for it. He said, you think, you've, you think you're a big shot. You think you've grown to the place where you're ready. Oh, Apollos, you know, we got all this revelation. He said, no, even now you're not ready for it. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? In other words, what are any of us? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned 
to each. In other words, Apollos has his calling, I have my calling, Peter has his calling, you have your calling, but all of us are the same thing. We are servants. Now, we may have different gifts. He might can speak better, I might can write better, this one might can sing, maybe I can't, on and on. We all have different gifts, he said, but it's, you know, there are certain gifts that draw attention, right? They, there are certain gifts that are like, ooh, that's, that's awesome. But he said, the bottom line is every one of us are just servants. We have a role to play, and God assigned us a gift so that we could, we could play that role well, but actually no positions are more significant than others. Okay, the person who's preaching versus the person who's in the nursery tonight with the kids or in the youth or doing music or in the sound booth, he says, look, this is what Paul would say. We're all servants. We're all serving the kingdom, and we're using the gifts that we gave. You probably can't do my gift. I probably can't do yours, on and on. But he says, we got to get, and a truly spiritual person understands this. And this is what he's trying to tell them. A truly spiritual person understands this, and they don't get into these kind of arguments. They understand, even the person like Apollos or Paul that has what we might go, oh, that's a, that's a super gift. Even, he said, that person understands, I'm just a servant. And this isn't anything more special than what somebody else can do. We all are serving, and we're using our gift that God gave us. None of us you know, are really responsible for our gift in that way. In other words, we didn't do anything to earn it. God gave it to us to use. And so I use my gift where I'm planted in service of the body of Christ. So he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. And who's better? One who planted or the one who watered? He said, no, neither actually. Who's better? Because it was God who gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, meaning they're the same and they work together. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Well, that's good news, isn't it? I like hearing that because I work hard at what I do and I know you do too. But he says, if you serve faithfully and you use your gift, there's going to come a day where you actually receive wages according to the labor. I believe he's talking about eternal. I mean, we, we receive blessings and things in this life, but I think he's talking about that eternal reward. And see, this is the mistake people make. They think, well... You know, I don't know if any of you were in Alexandria when uh, Franklin Graham came and had that big crusade probably, what, 20 years ago. Gosh, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, you know, Franklin Graham had kind of taken over for his, for his dad, and he was doing that huge conference. And we were over there at the uh, Coliseum, and it was just packed out. And uh, it was awesome. But just a quick show of hands. Who, who was there at the Franklin Graham crusade? Man, two of us. Good gracious. Y'all missed out on that. Y'all probably didn't come to the Lord till after that. You know, that was 25 years ago. But anyway, and just huge Colosseum. The Colosseum was just packed with people. And then he gives an invitation. They just flood down to the front. But people see stuff like that and they think, oh, man, God must really love Franklin Graham. You know, God, there must be such a huge reward in heaven for Franklin Graham. Let me tell you something. What Paul's explaining here, and this is explained to other places in the New Testament, we are not rewarded by the amount of fruit that we have. We are rewarded according to our faithfulness. It's not according to the amount. So one person might have, you know, they might have saved 10 million people in the, in the world, but they were just faithful with the, the gift God gave them. And someone else, they, it may not look like they had that kind of fruit, but they are just as faithful as the other person. And the Bible is so clear that when we stand before God, we're not going to be judged by whether we had 10 talents, 5 talents, or 1 talent. The reward is the same, but it's based on faithfulness. That's why he says, enter into the kingdom and to the rest that I have for you. He said, good and faithful servant. So it has to do with faith. Don't ever let the enemy lie to you and go, well, it's not that significant what I'm doing. Look, I can tell you, God's given you a gift to serve the kingdom. And you do it faithfully with what he's given you. God, and I, I've used this example before. You know, God may have given you a, a little spoon and you're digging with that spoon and you look up and somebody's over here and they've got a backhoe, you know, and they're digging and you go, man, they're moving 10 times the dirt. You just be faithful 
with your little spoon and let them be faithful with their, and then when you stand before God, the rewards are going to be the same. That's what it tells us right here. So he says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Amen. So obviously, uh, Apollos had visited Corinth and possibly other Christian community. He was very influential. He seemed to have a very good relationship with Paul, actually. It, it may seem like when you first read this that Paul's almost like jealous or you know something, but that's not the case. He has the Corinthians in mind. He goes, this isn't good for you. you know. And, he, and I love Apollos, but really Apollos is nothing. And he said, Paul's not, not anything either. And so he's addressing this for the Corinthians. It's not because he's insecure about it. He actually seemed to have a good relationship with Apollos. And historical evidence, not, not biblical, but extra biblical evidence, there's writings that tells us that actually uh, Apollos was very unhappy with this schism that was happening at, at Corinth. 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 12, he mentions Apollos again. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Uh, some people believe that that's what's being referenced here, is that Apollos intentionally withdrew himself for the, from the Corinthians because of this. He didn't want to cause any issues. And Paul was urging him, no, you, you need to go back. You need to visit. You know, you need to, to address it. And, uh, but he said, no, he'll, he'll come when he has opportunity. Now, obviously, Paul would not be strongly urging Apollos to go to Corinth if he didn't feel like that he trusted Apollos and that Apollos was going to be good for the Corinthians. So they did have a good relationship. He's mentioned again in Titus 3.13. Paul's writing to Titus, who was in Crete. And he says, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So he's, asking, he's making sure that Titus is providing for Apollos on his travels and on his journeys. So we see that Apollos was making rounds through the churches also. He was in Crete. We know he was in Ephesus. And he was at Corinth. So Apollos is doing his work of the ministry. And Paul seems to be supporting him in it, saying, you know, telling Titus, hey, speed them along. Help them. Uh, see that they lack See that they lack nothing. Uh, last thing, kind of running out of time tonight, but last thing I want to mention about Apollos is that there is even some evidence that he possibly authored the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't actually know who authored the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Some people think it's Paul, but there, there seems to be just too much evidence that it was not Paul that we don't nearly have time to get into tonight. And, you know, if you think it's Paul or if you, it doesn't really matter. It's not that, like I said earlier, the Holy Spirit wrote it. So it's, it's not that crucial who the actual author was. But there is some evidence that it was Apollos. And part of the reason why uh, Apollos is a candidate is because it's the most, when Greek scholars look at it, it's the most perfect Greek, and it's obviously been written by someone who was highly, highly educated, highly, highly intellectual. There, there's, there's Greek words in the book of Hebrews that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. They're only, the only time they were ever used was in the book of Hebrews. So that was why they, part of the reason why they don't think it's Paul, and there's a lot of other reasons, uh, even some things that are specifically said in the book. But one of the leading people that is possible who wrote the book of Hebrews is Apollos, and actually everything in that book does fit him. Um, there's nothing that would say it wasn't him, but there's not enough conclusive to say for sure that it was him, but it's, it's possible. Last thing I want to leave you with tonight is, we kind of already covered this some, but just, just to remember that, you know, there are many personalities in the body of Christ, and you can, people can get caught up in this today, right? You, you can, oh, you know, you, my favorite preacher on YouTube, and you listen to this one, oh, who you listen to? I listen to this one, and I go to this church, and I go to that one. There are many personalities in the body of Christ, and this is what I will tell you. It takes extreme effort and maturity to not let what Paul talked about, humanness, humanity, come in and cause 
issues and cause problems. You know, it's one of the reasons why so many churches are divided. You know, if you look at how many churches are in our city and, and how many good pastors, good people love God, serve God, but yet there seems to be this separation. Even if you just look at how many denominations there are in the body of Christ, I've lost count. I mean, I could, there's some pretty obscure ones out there. But there's so many denominations. What does that come from? Every single denomination comes from somebody who said, well, I don't agree with you on that. Well, you know, here's what the Bible says. Well, I think it says this. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go start my own church. <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just go start our own denomination. And so that you have just, that just kept happening until you just have so many denominations. We're non-denominational, by the way. Just not saying we're any better than anyone else. I'm just saying we're not, we're not part of that, but. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that wasn't obviously when Jesus said he's the builder of the church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, I don't think that was his intention, that the church end up like that. You know, I think that we should have this perspective that Paul's talking about of, hey, we're all servants of God. We're all trying for the same goal. We're trying to reach people for God, bring people into the kingdom, you know, and not criticize, but support, love, pray for. You know, we, when we have our prayer nights, that's one of the things we do. We pray for other pastors in the city, other churches in the city. And when we first started this church, you know, the Lord led me to pray for other pastors in the city. And, and what he spoke to me was, I said, okay, what do you want me to pray? He said, I want you to pray exactly what you want to happen to you in one life. You pray for them. And so that was what we did. That was what, and we do that on prayer nights too. You know, we pray for other churches, the same things we want for, for revival, for people to be saved, for an open door to preach the gospel, you know, for help, for finances, for volunteers, for all the things that we need. We pray for that for them. Why? Because we're not in competition. We're, we're on the same team. And it doesn't matter whose church is bigger or small. None of that matters. We're, we're all servants doing the work of the Lord. And that's the right mindset to have. It's a kingdom mindset. And that's the mindset that Paul was trying to get. But, I, but again, I will say this. There are many different personalities in the body of Christ. And sometimes there are personalities that, that rub your personality the wrong way. And there's going to be time for offense. This thing with Apollos and Paul could have been a division. You know, it could have been a problem. That even with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, he could have said, I, you don't know what you're talking about. Look how God's using me. Who are you? You know, y'all are just tent makers. Y'all don't preach. You don't know anything. Look at me. I got all the... So they could have been that. But everybody involved, all the, the players, seemed to have the heart of God and have humility, and so that it, was a, it ended up being a blessing. So just remember that. Because, you know, people get offended and they leave churches and stuff. For, and people, if you're in church for any amount of time, you're going to have an opportunity to get mad at somebody else. Well, they said this, or somebody was talking about this, or I didn't get to do this, or I got overlooked for this. There, there's, it's unending. There's always going to be... Something, and, and let me tell you, that, that Satan will use that to derail you. He will use that to derail what God is doing in your life. I, I've seen people leave churches that their children had never been in church, their adult children had never been in church, and they had three sets of kids married, and all their grandkids married kids in church for the first time, and got mad and left church. And I was like, man. Uh, you'd been praying, believing God for your, your, all your kids to be in church for decades. They're finally all in church, serving God, happy. You got mad about something and left. But listen, that's how Satan works. Anything in you that he can't, anything that can be offended, anything that, 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 that you haven't dealt with, he'll use, he'll point out, he'll get those thoughts going. And look, this is such a great example of what could have gone a different way, but instead you have all these people learning to work together, learning to support each other, learning to work together in the body of Christ, and then who was, the, who, who was the, the benefactors of that? The Corinthians, the believers. Who would have been the casualty to it? If Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and those, if they couldn't have got it straight, who would have been the casualty? The Corinthians. Can you imagine how that would have affected the young Corinthian church? Apollos is mad at Paul. Paul's mad at Apollos. They're having arguments. It's the Corinthians that would have suffered. And the, the new believers, the believers got. So, again, just keep that in mind. 
for yourself, for others. There's got to be a lot of room in our heart for differences, disagreements, offenses, things like that. That's, that's what church is. It's a family, and every family has issues, right? <laughs> every family has arguments, disagreements, all that, but you don't just like disown people. You know, you, you work them out, right? You work through it. You, you solve it. 